Our Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that your word challenges us. And we acknowledge, Lord, that we in our flesh are so resistant to change. And so I ask, Lord, that as we look at this parable today, as we look at this passage, the words of our Lord, that you would give us understanding and that you would give us conviction and that you would give us grace in order that we may more fully be sanctified and edified by our time today for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, as we continue in our study of the parables today, we're reminded of at least two things, or at least I'm reminded of at least two things. The first is that sometimes God's Word is really hard. Sometimes it's like taking a mouthful of of food that's just more than you can swallow. And so you're sitting there and you've got people around you and you're thinking, I I, I can't just like spit this out. What am I going to do with it? Because God's Word is what it is. It says what it says. Whether we like it, whether we dislike it, whether we're comfortable with it, whether we're uncomfortable with it, God's Word says what it says. And our feelings don't change the meaning of what is said and what is written. So sometimes His Word is very very hard for us. It's challenging for us. And that's good. It's challenging because our flesh is so set in its ways and God's ways are so much different. The second thing that we're reminded of is that Jesus had a lot to say about money. He had a lot to say about money. Now people don't like or they get uncomfortable about sermons that are about money and finances and stewardship and so on and so forth. And I get it. I mean, I really, I really do get it. Sometimes there's good reason to be leery or skeptical. I mean, prosperity preachers, if you listen to what they say, every message is about money. Every message is about getting richer and amassing more things and send us your money and we'll, we'll, we'll touch your, your prayer request and pray for you. Like, what is that? And so there's good reason to be skeptical about stuff like that. We should get uncomfortable when Scripture gets twisted the way that prosperity teachers twist Scripture. But at the same time, we can't escape the reality. It's impossible to escape the reality, if we're honest with Scripture, that God has a lot to say about money. And that the way that we manage our money, just like the way we manage everything in life, matters to God. And it's worth noting that about one-third of the parables that Jesus taught had something to do with money. They had something to do with a coin or riches or material possessions. See, there's this danger that we fix our hearts and fix our minds and our desires and our goals and our aspirations on the things of this world. That's the greatest danger to any one of us, is that we fix our goals on the things of this world. And so with that being the case, Jesus taught extensively against that danger. He said to the rich young ruler how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Man, the, the, the rich young ruler, he, he came to Jesus wanting eternal life, but he wasn't willing to give up his riches, his God, his false God for the sake of of following Christ. At least not yet. And I do have a theory that he eventually did. And if you want more information about that, see me after. He said, Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. To remind us that it is in our nature, it's, it's within our, our fallen nature to invest and to spend our money on things. Specifically, on things that matter to us. But even outside the scope of Jesus' teachings, Scripture explicitly condemns the love of money. It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, as it's often quoted as saying, but it does say the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's the third soil that Jesus talked about in the parable of the soils. The people would be drawn away by 
the riches of this world. So Paul says, people have been, because of this craving, people have been drawn away from the faith. The craving for money. The craving for material wealth. The craving for all this stuff has caused people to wander from the faith. It's been a stumbling block that prevents them from following Christ. And Paul followed that up not by exhorting Timothy to pursue earthly treasure, even with the right mindset. No, he encourages Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Paul's saying, don't chase after earthly treasure. Don't make earthly treasure your treasure. Instead, pursue holy and righteous virtue. As we come to Luke chapter 16, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. We find one of the strangest, one of the most complicated, one of the most difficult parables that Jesus taught. And it reflects the same type of exhortation that Paul gave to Timothy, but in a very strange, very maybe even confusing way. Rather than setting before us a virtuous example of what our lives should look like to a T, he sets before us an estate manager who lacks virtue, an estate manager who lacks integrity, who is just a scoundrel, and who finds himself in a crisis because of his unscrupulous practices. So this lying, cheating, unregenerate, godless man is about to be fired for the way that he's handled his manager's estate. And so he cunningly uses what little time, what little resources he has left to use dishonest means to secure his future. So turn with me to Luke chapter 16. If you've got your Bible from out in the foyer, we're going to be on page 875. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 13 together. The central point that we're going to see in this passage is that we must make the most of what little time we have left on this earth and with what little resources we have for the sake of advancing the preaching of the gospel message. I'll say it again. We must make the most of what little time we have left on earth and what little resources we have for the sake of advancing the preaching of the gospel message. Now, before we begin looking at this parable, it's probably worth noting that this parable falls immediately after the parable of the prodigal son, which ended with the last verse in chapter 15. That was a parable about a son who wastes a huge sum of money, a great inheritance on worldly living. The word prodigal means extravagant. It means wasteful. And Jesus said of him, The younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now hold on to that word squandered, because it actually shows up in chapter 16, verse 1, in the very first verse of this next chapter, this time in reference to the man who is known as the shrewd or the dishonest manager. So let's start with Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. We read, He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, And I am ashamed to beg, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. 
So let's just take this piece by piece because this is certainly one of the most difficult, one of the most complicated parables for us to make any sense of, perhaps because we have at least some degree of inclination. If you've read the other parables, you know that there's usually some character in there who is a picture of Christ or is a picture of God. But So we, we carry that inclination over into this one. But there is no character in this parable who represents God. In fact, there's nobody in this parable who represents God the Father or God the Son or God the Holy Spirit. This parable, like so many of Jesus' parables, was designed to both conceal truth and reveal truth. For those who remained steadfast in their rejection of Christ, it concealed the truth. It hid the truth that was standing right before their very eyes. But for those who had ears to hear, they were light and truth and insight for godly living. So the main character is immediately introduced to us here in verse 1. He's referred to as a manager. And the Greek word there is actually more frequently translated as steward. He's a steward. That's a person who manages stuff for somebody else. Now, down in verse 8, Jesus actually adds a descriptive word to his title. He calls him a dishonest manager. So there's no two ways about it. This manager that we're going to be looking at, the main character of this parable, isn't the typical story with a good guy and a bad guy, a hero and a villain. No, this is a wicked man who illustrates a righteous principle for us. So word gets around to the manager's boss, to this guy who has more money than than we can imagine, probably somebody, you know, around the status of Bill Gates. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of worldly treasure. And so word gets to him that his manager, his, his steward, the man who manages his business and his possessions, has been wasting what he has been managing. The word wasting. You want to pay pay attention to that because that was the word translated as squandering in the parable of the prodigal son. So perhaps there's a little bit of a carryover here. He's been wasting his boss's possessions in the same way that the prodigal son wasted his inheritance. Now how is this steward wasting, how's he been wasting his boss's estate? Honestly, we don't know. Maybe he was using company resources for the sake of personal dishonest gain. You know, we don't know. How he was wasting it isn't what's important. What's important is that he has been wasting the rich man's estate, his possessions. And so somehow, word of his squandering, word of his wasteful management, got back to the boss who wastes no time calling the manager before him. He immediately calls his shrewd manager, his dishonest manager, before him. And it sounds like a scene where Donald Trump would say, you're fired, you know, and and, and everybody applauds. But that's what he does. He says, you're fired. He fires the dishonest manager, the shrewd manager. But he's not free to go just yet. First, the rich boss tells him, you need to settle your accounts. You need to turn in your accounts to make record of who still owes what. So it's basically the modern day equivalent of a two-week notice. Now we might say, well, that, that seems fair, but it seems that if you've got somebody managing that much money, you probably don't want to give him two weeks to... uh to waste it, two more weeks on the job. Anyway, the shrewd manager knows that when he loses his job, when his accounts are all settled and, and turned in, he will not only lose his job, he will lose everything. He'll lose his income, and perhaps more significantly, he will lose his housing. And so he starts considering his options. He's not Apparently not a, a real big guy. He's not strong enough to dig a ditch. Maybe, maybe he's got some kind of injury. We don't know. But he's not strong enough to di- dig a ditch. And his pride is too big to allow him to beg. So what is he going to do once he loses his job? He decides to take advantage of what little time and little opportunity he has remaining to cook the books, so to speak. He's going to use what he has for the sake of 
winning friends and influencing people and making other wealthy people indebted to him, obligated to him. And so what he does is he goes out to the people who are in debt to his boss, to his master, and he works out a plan to get them indebted not to his boss, but to himself instead. So he goes to the people who owe huge sums of money to his boss, and he starts slashing prices on the spot. How much do you owe? You owe for a hundred measures of oil. Well, you know, it's, it's your lucky day because I'm going to give you a, a 50% discount just because I'm a nice guy and I like you. So here you go. What do you, what do you owe? A uh, hundred? Let's write it for 50. What about you? How much do you owe? You owe for a hundred measures of wheat. Boy, that's a, that's a lot of money. But you know what? I, I like you. So let's just say that today only, right now, you pay 80 and we'll just call it even. We'll call it a day. And it's not just that these are the only two people who owe the Master money. These are the only two examples that Jesus points to. Just to illustrate the fact that He is slashing prices for His own benefit. And why does He do this? What, what benefit is it? Look at verse 4. He says, "...so that when I am removed from management, from stewardship, people may receive Me into their houses." So he's doing this to set up a place for himself to be welcomed once his job is finished, once he is fired, because he's about to lose his job, he's about to lose his income, he's about to lose his house, but by giving deep discounts to people who are indebted to the boss, he's securing his future. Now this was an honor-based culture. It was an honor-based culture, which basically means that if word got around that the shrewd manager had given such incredible favor, such incredible bargains to these men, only to be turned away by them when he comes to them and needs something, it would bring shame upon them in the culture. So the hooks are in. The hooks are in because they, they owe him one. They owe him a big one. They, they are indebted to him. They're obligated in this honor-based system. And so by giving these people such deep and incredible discounts, he ensures that he has a secure future. He ensures that he'll have employment, income, and a house to call home before they're even done cleaning out his proverbial desk. And do it quickly, he says. Do it quickly. Don't don't take time to think about it. Don't take time to consider your options. Don't take time to negotiate. Just sit down and sign on the bottom line. That's when you know you're talking to a con man. When they try to rush you into a huge decision. It's a sure sign also that the shrewd manager, the dishonest manager, knows that what he's doing is wrong. It's morally wrong. But hey, this is looking out for number one. Self-preservation is the name of the game. If you want to roll with the big dogs, you better bark and bite like the big dogs. And so just like that, In one moment, he just cheats his boss, his master, out of a fortune for his own personal benefit. Man, what a a low-life cheat, right? Man, he is certainly worthy of the title that Jesus gives him. Dishonest manager. Dishonest steward. And yet, he had the authority to do this. He had the authority Because he's still under the employment of the master. He had the authority to offer these bargain basement slash discounts. He wouldn't be able to hide what he had done at this point. And you'll see that he doesn't even try to. He's not saying, well, you know, uh, why don't you you do 70% and I'll keep 20 for myself and, you know, give 50 to my boss. No, he's not trying to hide anything here. He's not trying to cover him, his own tracks. He knows that it's immoral, but he knows that he would be caught. And he's legally allowed to do this. And so just like that, all these wealthy businessmen are indebted to him. They owe him one. They're wrapped around his finger. And that's scandalous, isn't it? This, this is a scandal, but at the same time, first of all, it's just a parable. It's not a true story. It's an illustration. And at the same time, also keep in mind who the audience is here. The audience is the disciples. He's talking to the disciples here. And Jesus uses this unscrupulous, unethical 
low-life cheat of a guy to teach them and us some very important lessons. But the lessons don't come before what might be the ultimate shocker in the story. We all like movies that have you know some huge twist at the end. There is a huge twist at the end of this parable. Let me ask you, if you were this master who just got cheated out of really the modern day equivalent of tens of millions of dollars, you've been robbed of a, of a huge fortune, what would you do? Not only have you been robbed, you've been robbed by the one person that you had put the utmost confidence in. What would you do? Jesus told another parable in Matthew chapter 24 of another wicked steward. And that one ended with Jesus saying, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of, and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that master did violence to the unfaithful steward, the unfaithful servant. But that's not what happens here. We'd expect that. Because in in our minds, we're probably thinking, well, that, that would be justice, right? But the story takes a startling turn. The first half of verse 8, look what it says. It says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He commends him. He congratulates him. And that's a very, very strange reaction, isn't it? I mean, he's just been cheated out of a fortune. And he congratulates him. He commends him. But his reaction reveals to us something about the story, and that is that this master doesn't represent God. See, the master in this story is is crooked too. He's a a crook who admires the fact that he got out-crooked. He got out-swindled. In the secular world, this kind of shrewdness earns respect. In the secular business world, this is the type of of behavior that that earns the admiration of fellow business people. I mean, think about it. That's why Americans have always loved Simon Cowell. Because he'll just be shrewd, man. No tact. He'll He'll go straight to the point and tell you the facts the way it is. Just ice in his veins. That's why people turn into Donald Trump saying, you're fired to somebody. I mean, those guys are so cold, so calculating. There's, there's part of us that wishes, man, I, I wish I could do that. I wish I could be so cold, so calculating, so blunt, not really caring about what the consequences are or how the person feels about what I say. And the point that Jesus is making is clearly stated in the second half of verse 8. He says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. There are only two types of people in the world. Sons of the world and sons of light. Who are the sons of the world? It's the lost, right? It's the the reprobate, the, the unsaved, the unregenerate. It's the world as James would refer to it as, as John would refer to it as. It's those who are not only citizens uh, of the world and not citizens of the kingdom of God, but they are people who are opposed to God and who hate the very things of God. And who are the sons of light? It's Christians. It's, it's the elect. It's, it's citizens of heaven. It's those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone alone. And the point that Jesus is making is that by and large, generally speaking, lost sinners are more shrewd, they are more wise, they're more cunning, they're more clever when it comes to preparing for the future than Christians are. The lost spend their lives making the most of their time on earth for the sake of securing their temporal, fleeting, earthly future. They spend more time doing that than Christians tend to for their eternal future. By the way, don't miss the fact that it's only a fictitious master who commends the steward. Jesus does not commend the steward. 
By no means is Jesus instructing us, either explicitly or implicitly, that we all need to go out and defraud and cheat and lie and steal our way to the top. You'll recall that Jesus once told His disciples to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. By the way, that that word wise, it's the same Greek word that gets translated as shrewd. He's shrewd or as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. That means that we need to be shrewd. We need to be wise. We need to be strategic with our time. But we need to do all that without sinning. We need to be innocent. So we aren't to follow the example that the shrewd manager gives for us in that sense. No, Jesus wants us to see something else. He wants us to see this shrewd manager's wisdom in securing his future while he still had an opportunity. Consider how absolutely absurd. Consider how absolutely backwards it is that the sons of the world will spend so much more time strategizing and taking calculated risks so that they can enjoy a few years at the end of their lives, maybe, if they don't have a heart attack before that point. And that they do that so much more wisely and more frequently and more strategically than sons of light who are headed for eternity in heaven. Should we not, as Christians, as sons of light, should we not be more active? Should we not be more aggressive, more committed, more shrewd, more wise about using what little time we have, what few resources we have, wisely and strategically for the sake of storing up treasure in heaven. That is the point that Jesus is making. That we need to make the most of our time, of what little time and what little resources we have for the sake of advancing the preaching of the gospel. So how do we apply this? I'm thankful that I don't have to put the, the hard work into this. Jesus d- did it for us. He's the one who gives us the application points here in the verses that follow. He gives us three primary principles that we can draw from this parable. The first principle is that money is a resource to be used for the sake of advancing the kingdom and glorifying God. Money is a resource to be used for the sake of advancing the kingdom and glorifying God. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, the way that's phrased is pretty complicated, I will admit. But the principle that Jesus is expressing here is really pretty simple and pretty straightforward. The principle is that money is a resource to be used for the sake of advancing the kingdom and glorifying God. The thing that trips people up here, is the first thing anyway, is the use of the term unrighteous wealth. You might say, well, what's, what's unrighteous wealth? Well, the, the word that gets translated wealth is the Aramaic word mammon. Mammon. So what does that refer to? Money. It, it's riches. And money isn't righteous, is it? Is money going to heaven? When you die, money stays behind. You can't take it with you. It's staying with the world where it belongs. It's part of the world system, the fallen, corrupt world system. So the instruction is, use your money to make friends for yourselves. And what's the point of that? He says, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Let's, let's start clarifying this by identifying the pronouns. When it fails, what's it? Money. Money. What, so, that, so that when money fails, they, who's they? It's the friends that you use your money to make friends with. So use your money to make friends for yourself so that when money fails, your friends may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're a son of light, where will you dwell for all of eternity? In heaven. In heaven. 
So use your money to make friends for yourself so that when money fails, your friends may receive you into heaven. Jesus is talking about how to store up treasure in heaven here. What did the shrewd manager, what did the the dishonest steward do? He used what few resources he had as a means of securing a dwelling place for his future. So what Jesus is saying here is that we must use our resources, and he's specifically referring to money here in this this verse, which is only one of the resources each one of us has. We must use our resources for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God and bringing glory to God. So Jesus says to use our money to make friends who will be there to welcome you into heaven when you get there. Jesus is underscoring the believers, the, 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 the responsibility that sons of light have to support ministries and ministers that are going forth proclaiming the gospel message. So the question that this forces us to ask ourselves is who is going to be there to welcome us into heaven saying, thank you. Thank you for supporting this or or that gospel preacher because God used him. Because of your faithfulness, God used him to bring the gospel to me. And I believed. And now we are friends for eternity. This is a reminder that unlike the the shrewd manager in the parable, yeah, you and I are stewards too, but unlike the, the shrewd manager, Jesus is telling us that we're instructed to be joyfully generous and wise with the resources that we've been entrusted with, all in order to make friends who will welcome us into heaven. So if a pagan, godless steward, manager, is wise enough to use the resources that he's got, that he's a steward of, for the sake of securing a brief temporal future, how much more wisely. That's the, this is the kind of argument he's using. It's a how much more argument. How much more wisely should we use the resources with which we've been entrusted for the sake of eternity? Now, Jesus isn't saying that that's where he expects all of our money to go. We, we are supposed to be good stewards with all of our money, but he's not saying that all of our money needs to go toward ministries and ministers that are advancing the kingdom. Uh, Paul did remind Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, chapter 5, verse 8, that someone who doesn't provide for their family is worse than an unbeliever. So you definitely should not be giving if that means neglecting your, your responsibility to take care of your family. So how much money should you give? How much money of yours should go toward advancing the kingdom of God? Well, you know, some people say Christians need to tithe. The the Christians have an obligation to to tithe, but I take the position that there is no tithe in the New Testament. If you look at the tithes of the Old Testament, first of all, it's more than ten percent. Secondly, it's it's almost it's it's always fruits and crops and, and things like that. No, there is no tithe under the new covenant. So how much should you give? Don't ask me. Don't ask me. It is honestly between you and the Lord. Because the New Testament principle for giving is not to tithe. It's that each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. That's from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. See, there was, there was a compulsion. There was an obligation that the Israelites had in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant to tithe. But we don't have that. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. So maybe it means you give as much as you can until it hurts. But ultimately, don't ask me. It's between you and the Lord. Maybe a tithe, maybe 10% is a good place to start, but I wouldn't call it a tithe because you're free to do It's between you and the Lord. You're you're free to give however much the Lord lays on your heart. Nevertheless, I think it's worth noting that there have been studies that have shown that the average churchgoer in America gives less than 2%. 
of their earnings toward gospel ministries. And at the same time, Americans invest significantly more money, actually billions more, on dog food and cat food than they do in advancing the gospel message through their offerings and mission giving. And it's kind of funny when you think about it that way, but it's not really funny. Because the message that's being sent there is that it's more important for our pets who aren't at risk of burning in hell forever, having their bellies full is more important than somebody who has never heard the gospel hearing it and being saved from eternal torment in hell. Is that really how we feel? Would we really rather have pets with full bellies than people hearing the gospel? Than friends to welcome us into heaven? Jesus is saying that it is our duty as good stewards to financially support the advance of the gospel. Money is a resource. It can be good or it can be bad, depending on you. But it's to be used by sons of light for the sake of advancing the kingdom and glorifying God. Think about it this way. There's nothing else. There's nothing else that you can invest your money in that will have effects in eternity. You're not going to take your money with you, but your money can be invested into something that will ensure that there is something in heaven for you. So you can use your your temporal earthly treasure to invest in heavenly treasure. And Jesus wants us to think about this. Maybe that's the reason it's, it's worded in such a kind of confusing way. He wants us to think about this. But really the principle is where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So maybe the question to ask is, where's your heart? But the truth is, even what treasure that we do have ultimately isn't ours. Ultimately it doesn't belong to us. So the second principle is found in verses 10 to 12. We read this. Jesus continues saying, One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So the previous principle in verse 9 forced us to look at the needs of others, forced us to consider the fact that there are people out there who need to hear the gospel message. But this principle is different. It doesn't focus our attention on others. It focuses the attention on ourselves. The principle here is that truly faithful people are generous because of who they are and what they treasure not because of how much they have or how little they have, not because of their circumstances in life. It's because of where their treasure is. So people who get what Jesus is saying here aren't just generous because they have some extra money at the end of the month to spare. No, they're generous because they have a proper perspective of their resources, including their money. You know, I remember a time when I was... Uh, working in the casino industry in Vegas, still in, in, in the secular world. And I was just starting out in the casino industry, wasn't making a lot of money. And I thought, you know, if I, if I just made more money, I'd have it made. I'd have all this extra money at the end of every month. I'd have more money than I, than I know what to do with, and then I can be generous. And then I got a job on the Las Vegas Strip in a nice casino that represented about a 50% increase in my earnings. And within a few months, just a few months, I had signed up for a new gym. I was eating out at nice restaurants more often. I was spending more money on entertainment, more money on new clothes, and so on and so forth. And what happened is that my lifestyle increased in price corresponding to my pay increase. As John MacArthur said, quote, a person with meager resources who spends everything he has on himself is not going to become selfless if he suddenly becomes rich, end quote. In other words, if you think that you're going to be more generous if you had more money, let's say you, you think, okay, if I, if I win the lottery, if I get a pay raise, 
if I do this or that to get more money, then I'll become more generous. That is not true. That is not true. The way it works is a self-indulgent person who becomes more affluent, who who gathers more money, is only going to become more self-indulgent. In one sense, in one sense, it's God's judgment against somebody who has a problem with self-indulgence that they would have more money. He's handing them over to their sin. So there are wealthy people who give nothing, and there are poor people who give everything. But conversely, there are wealthy people who give everything, and there are poor people who give nothing. What makes the difference? The difference is their money goes toward what they treasure. Their money goes toward what they love. It doesn't matter if you have a lot. It doesn't matter if you have next to nothing. It's a matter of what you love and desire. The person who's faithful with little will be faithful with a lot. And the person who's unfaithful with with just meager resources, Jesus says, will also be unfaithful if they were to have a lot. Because it's a heart issue. Ultimately, it's, it's an issue of where your treasure is, where your heart is, because they are in the same place. It's a matter of having the right perspective on things. I mean, do you understand that everything that you have is ultimately God's? That He's only entrusted everything that you have with you for a season? I'd say that the defining question of whether or not somebody is a good steward is if they recognize that everything that they own, everything that they have, every resource at their disposal is a gift from God. Even money? Even money. And that's so contrary to worldly thinking. Because worldly thinking goes something like this. What I have is mine. I'm the one who clocks in and clocks out every day. I'm the one who goes to work and does what I do. So everything that I have, I have earned it. I deserve it. It is mine. But the Bible teaches just the opposite. You might work hard, but it's still not yours. It's God's. It's God who entrusts us with everything that we possess. Nothing is yours. Not even your next breath is yours. Rather, what we have, everything that we have ultimately belongs to God. And that's true whether you have a lot or whether you have next to nothing. And so we must examine ourselves. We have to ask ourselves, am I, am I using my resources And I I would say all of them, but specifically this passage is talking about money, perhaps because it's the most difficult one. Am I using my resources primarily for my benefit or entirely for my benefit? Or am I using it primarily for God's benefit? If God were signing every check, would my spending be different? Because the truth is, to a large extent, Every single one of us spends money on stuff we don't need. So it doesn't matter if you have much. It doesn't matter if you have little. Giving is ultimately a case of examining your priorities and understanding that what we have doesn't belong to us. Everything that we have is a gift. Everything that we have belongs to the Lord's. Or belongs to the Lord. Everything. And so therefore... Everything is a stewardship issue. Even your relationships. Even your next breath. The third application of this parable is found in verse 13. The first application caused us to consider others, the spreading of the gospel to people who haven't heard it. The second one forced us to look at ourselves, look at our motives, look at where our our treasure and where our heart is. The third one focuses our hearts and our minds back on God. Look at verse 13 with me. Jesus says, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So there's the third principle. You can't serve God and money. Notice that Jesus doesn't say that the alternative to serving God is having money serve you. We think that's the way it works. 
in the flesh, don't we? We, we think that, that money's at our disposal and we're master over it, but that's not what Jesus says. No, he says that the alternative to serving God is that you serve money. It owns you. Nobody can buy their way into heaven. Nevertheless, the way that we manage our resources, the way that we manage our money is an indication of what we treasure most. And to some extent, in, in one sense at least, this is kind of a salvation issue, isn't it? Because Jesus is saying that a genuine Christian doesn't love money or riches or material possessions or anything for that matter more than they love God. You can't obey both. You can't serve both because they'll lead you in opposite directions. So if you choose mammon, you serve mammon. If you choose money, you serve money. It doesn't serve you. But if you choose God, then you can have a right perspective on money and you can certainly be a steward of what you have. It doesn't serve you. You can, or it serves you. You don't serve it. But you have to be shrewd. You have to be wise. You have to be calculating and you have to be intentional. There's only one sense in which the shrewd manager was an example for us to follow. He knew what was coming, and he planned for it. In that sense, he was far wiser than countless people who have never cheated, never lied, never swindled, never stolen a dime in their lives, but who have nevertheless failed to plan for what is certain to come. And that is the day that you will stand before the Lord and you will give an account for your life and the way that you have managed your time, your resources, your relationships, and your money. See, every one of us is a steward of the things with which God has entrusted us. And one day, each of us will give an account for everything that we have done with our time and resources. So Jesus is challenging you today to think about and to consider your future and eternity with the same clarity and the same wisdom that the shrewd manager had as he thought about his temporal future on earth. Listen, life is so short. The longer you live, the more you know that's true. I just turned 45 a couple weeks ago. Man, my life has gone by so fast. 45 years, boom, it's gone. How much time do I have left? None of us can say. How much time do you have left? Nobody knows. You don't know. I don't know. God knows. And so that's all the more reason to act quickly, isn't it? The longer I live, man, the, the, the less I live for the things of this world, the less value, the less pleasure, the less desire I have for the things of this world because they just come and go. And the more I look forward to heaven. That's where I want to store up my treasure. How about you? The prophet Elijah once said to the Israelites who were continually wandering away from God to worship Baal, he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. That's from 1 Kings 18.21, right after the incident with God pouring out fire from heaven upon the wet wood and the wet stones and the ground and it all burned up. If the Lord is God, then follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. That's the challenge that Jesus is setting forth before you today. If you don't believe that God is God, if you believe that you are the Lord of your own life, you can choose to worship Baal. You can choose to worship some lesser God, but I have to warn you that there will be consequences later. But if you believe that God is God, if you believe that Christ is Lord, if you have repented and placed saving faith in Him, then love and serve Him as a good steward. Consider yourself a steward who's been entrusted with resources and a mission to bring the gospel to the lost. So what does that look like? Support the local church? Yeah, sure. Support paraministry organizations? like radio broadcasts and so on? Sure, absolutely. What about missions? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Invest in the mission field. And do it all with a joyful heart. Knowing that you cannot take your unrighteous mammon. You cannot take your money with you. But you can trade your temporal treasure for heavenly treasure by using it to advance the gospel. Glorify God. And thereby ensure that there will be people in heaven who have heard the gospel because of you. We must make the most of what little time and what few resources we have on earth for the sake of advancing the preaching of the gospel message. The Christian life isn't just about us as individuals. It's about the Great Commission too. It's about reaching the lost for Christ. So do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, we confess to you that none of us have been perfect stewards. That there is time that you gave us to redeem for your glory and for the spreading of the gospel that we have not used wisely. But we pray, Lord, that you would use this passage to convict us and to teach us to manage our resources in a way that advances the gospel, that reaches the lost, and most importantly, that glorifies Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the resources with which we have been entrusted. We do pray, God, that you would teach us to look at the world and to value it less and to see the opportunity to have heavenly treasure and to strive for that. All for the glory of Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.